Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. You can also follow my podcasts on YouTube. Just search Steve Wraith and click subscribe. Hi, welcome along to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. And today's guest is Steve Thrift, who is an author. How are you, Steve? I'm very good, thank you. Great to have you on. Uh, you came to my attention uh, with uh, Britain's next bestseller, the publisher, based in the Northeast. And he notified me last year, actually, that you were uh, planning on putting a, a book out called uh, Nothing Like the Truth, which is uh, about the Cray Twins, which, of course, as, uh, many of my watchers and viewers will know, is something which uh, you know is quite close to my heart and something that I've got a lot of interest and a lot of knowledge in. So, we will come to the book, uh, you know, slightly later in the in the chat and podcast. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself first of all, Steve. Where we where were you brought up, and uh, how have you spent your life before you've uh, you know you know gone into the journey of being an author? Okay, well, the relevant part of my life is that I was a, a police detective um, in the Thames Valley, and um, I spent some time at the Old Bailey giving evidence, not as a defendant, I may say. And uh, that gave me the idea of thinking about the famous people that had been in the dock in the courtroom that I'd been, including the craze. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a foreboding place for anyone who uh, has probably uh, been up to no good, the old Bailey. But um, it's a fascinating place just if you're on a trip to London to, you know, to go down there and just walk down the street where so many famous and infamous people have walked with their barristers and lawyers. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been down there myself. I've had a a photograph outside the old central criminal court doorways, which, you know, haven't changed much over the years. And, you know, had a look up at the uh, the scales of justice. It, it is quite a fascinating place. I mean, you, you say you were down there, obviously, giving evidence. I mean, was there any high-profile cases that you were involved in? Yes, that was a ten-handed armed robbery case and ten other armed robberies. It was a very serious case. But it was held in the number one courtroom. And I looked around the courtroom and thought of the people that had been there. Including the, including Christie, uh, Crippen, and Ratty, and the Craze. And I thought, why hasn't somebody written a story about this, whether fictional or factual? And there's a lot about the old Bailey that people don't know, because the old part of it leads to Newgate Prison, or what was Newgate Prison, and the hangman's gibbet. And uh, that's, what, that's what gave me the idea. I thought somebody ought to write it, but that was many years ago. It probably took me 30 years to actually get down to writing it. Has has the the interior of the the court at the old Bailey Number One Court has it changed a lot since those days? You know, back in the days of sixty eight, sixty nine, when the Crays were arrested and tried and found guilty. No, that part of the court's not changed at all. Number One, Number Two Court are separate from the other parts of the court, um, and there are what people don't know is the history of it. There are two hundred cells beneath that building, um, and the way out of the court for a defendant. It's to where the, the which is to where the hangman was in the old days. Ah, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I've never actually been inside. Um, obviously, seen numerous TV programs which have covered it, and uh, you know, looked into the looked into the courts, and um, you know, the, the, a lot of infamous faces, as you say, but a lot of infamous stories from there as well. And uh, fascinating piece of history. Is it somewhere where the general public can visit, Steve? Is it something that if if, if you can arrange it, can go in or? You have to be basically in the public gallery and, and you know, going to watch an active case. I believe it's the public gallery and you have to have a ticket to do that. But the public are given tickets to do that. Um, but they 
for a famous or an infamous case, it will be a matter of queuing up the tickets in the morning. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, from, from your perspective, um, you know, you, you, you say you're a detective. I mean, how long were you serving in the, in the police force? And, and did you say which, which force did you say it was, Steve? I was in the Thames Valley Police Force and I was 10 years. 10 years, yeah. What made you want to become a police officer? Um, it wasn't uh, like the, because I wanted to do everything right. I wasn't a do-gooder, but I fancied the challenge. I watched the, the programmes on the television. I was influenced by those, I think. I wanted to be in a Sweeney initially. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the sight of those guys in, in, in the Sweeney is certainly something which, you know, would you either wanted to be the cops or the robbers watching those programmes. So I can imagine why that would be. You know, a motivation for you. Was it everything that you hoped it would be, Steve? Um, yes, it was. Actually, it was. I learned a great deal about life and about myself during that time. Um, and uh, as I say, during that time, it gave me the thought about writing this book. Yeah. Can you remember your first arrest? I can indeed, yes. It was for an assault um, and it was a young man. And I remember saying the words that you're under arrest uh, uh, and I'll probably never forget that. I can't remember who he assaulted or yeah. what happened in court, but uh, I do remember he pleaded not guilty. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, were, 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 there, were there any scary moments or hairy moments? I mean, you, you said that case that ended up at the Old Bailey was a 10-man, um, you know, robbery. Well, you know, were, were there any, any major scary moments for you? In my career, there certainly were, yes. And uh, the the... Book that's behind you is part of a trilogy in which the praise uh, deal with crimes, and I've tried to include crimes that I dealt with and that I was involved in. And one of those involved a very wicked man who killed his wife and cut the head off. Before that, he tried to shoot me. So that's he obviously is included in that in the third book, I think. Okay, okay. So I mean, obviously, from from your perspective, you you know, you moved on. You you did you know did ten years in the force. Was there a reason for coming out? Were you, were, you know, were you, you know, had you felt felt that you'd achieved everything you wanted to achieve? Did you want a career change? What what was the reason for leaving? It was frustration with the lack of promotion. I I, I didn't join to be a, a a PC or a DC with with no disrespect. I joined because I wanted uh, to be a senior officer, and I never got to that point. Although I qualified for it, in those days it was very much certainly in Thames Valley a question of dead men's shoes. Might have been in the matter be a different case because promotion was automatic, and I passed every possible course that I could take in the police. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. I think uh, the frustration of it is sometimes you know they, they already know who they want to give those jobs, and, and there's never an opportunity for people to move up the ladder, which uh, which can lead to frustration. So when you left the police force, what did you do? Well, I, during the, my service in the police force, I was. Um, close protection for the foreign secretary for a time and I went back to, I went back to doing that for a while and that took me that took me uh, to some interesting places around the world but then I then I went back to investigation again that took me around the world as well there must be a book in that Steve to be honest looking after the uh, you know, looking after somebody as important as a foreign secretary yes but it would be a very short book it'd be a pamphlet and it would, it would I think it'd be quite boring really yeah <laughs> you never know it's, uh, it's, you know it's those kind of stories some people really enjoy 
enjoy reading about that kind of stuff. It's interesting. I mean, my background is in security as well. I did 18 years. Um, you know, I did I did some close protection. I also did door work in, in Newcastle and Ibiza in London. So I also did debt collection work. So it's, um, you know, it's it's one of those things. You have, you always end up with plenty of stories and you feel that those stories wouldn't be interesting, but you, but you never know. So what led you to then obviously uh, you know you're standing in the old bailey um, giving evidence as, as a servant police officer you you've obviously you know looked around thought of the likes as you said already of the craze and uh christie and crippen etc and that's given you the idea um you know did you always have a you know an interest in writing or was it something that you you know you discovered once you know you you decided to put pen to paper or, or, or drag a typewriter out of the cupboard? Well, it really was a, a question that I was ill a, a few years ago, and I thought of something that I, I maybe I should do this before anything happened to me, um, and I wanted to get it out of my system. And having got it out of my system, I became so fascinated with writing that I just carried on, and it's become an obsession more than anything now. Are you a reader of crime books, or were you? I mean, you've already mentioned there that you've used some of your own experiences from working in the police force in some of the stories in in these books. Um, you know, was it, was it always the idea to, you know, to pull on personal experiences or are you coming up with new ideas? No, it never was. But um, having started the genre, I thought, well, maybe uh, it's more interesting if I can write it from a policeman's point of view. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So have you found it difficult to write or, you know, I mean, I know when I'm writing, I mean, I've written, you know, many, many books now over the years. Um, you know, have you found there's a good time for you to write? Do you, do you like to get up in the morning and stuff? Or are you somebody who likes to get up, go through your routine and then maybe do a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the afternoon? You know, what, what's your approach to writing? I think it's a question of being disciplined to write. Um, and I have disciplined myself to do that. And I have a, a word count that I have to achieve every day. And I'm dissatisfied if I don't do that. I often beat that word count, but um, I think it's a question of discipline. And it's something that I very much enjoy. And I feel that uh, once I get behind the keyboard, it flows. Yeah. Do you ever suffer writer's block? I haven't yet. But then again, I've only written six books. Still six is a hell of an achievement. Writing one is an achievement, but writing six is, is a hell of an achievement. Writer's block is one of those things which I've suffered on you know, numerous occasions. But I find that if... If I do end up in that situation, I think it's best just to walk away from the, you know, walk away from the keypad and um, go and do something else, and you'll come back to it refreshed, or you know, uh, you, you'll find you'll find you know you can you can achieve what you want to achieve just by taking that little bit of time out. You know, sometimes you you're looking at something too heavily or thinking about it too heavily, and go back to it. It all makes sense when you go back, you know, refreshed with a, a you know a more relaxed pair of eyes. I find you know. Yes, indeed. So give us a give us an indication of. Um, you know, the idea for this first book, and, and, and obviously we've got the cover there, as I say, Britain's next bestseller, uh, Dave McCaffrey has, um, you know, has now, you know, now published this book, it's only recently out, and you can get uh, you know, order copies on there, and I believe, I think you can get it on Amazon as well, Steve. Uh, so nothing Like the Truth, um, which, you know, is, is a great title, um, and, and obviously it's about the notorious crib. so one out of all the people who you heard about in court number one did you choose the craze i think because they've always been a fascination with the british public and um i decided that possibly their story wasn't complete 
and I wondered what would have happened had they been um, found not guilty at that court case. And in my book, because of corruption and various other matters, they are found not guilty. And, and one wonders what would happen if they were found not guilty and they continued with their spree. Where does the book start, Steve? I'm sorry, say that again. Where, where does the book start off? It starts off just before the, the trial. No, it's the trial of the craze at the Old Bailey. Okay, okay. And obviously, from my perspective, you know, they get a not guilty. Um, you know, is the first book concentrating on on that, you know, the immediate the immediate time after that, or does it does it go on a few years? You know, what can you give us any indication of? You know, what what the story is about? Sure, the first book is entirely about the trial and about other things surrounding the trial. It involves uh, a lot of people, some of some who are fictional and some who are not. And I've had um, authority from some of those people to put their names in there. And um, it purely involves the trial and immediately after the trial. The second and third book go on from that. Is the, um, you know, is, is the first book, um, you know, we've mentioned already that some of your previous pieces that you've worked on, does it include any of those, you know, stories? Is there any stories in there from, from your case work? Not, not the first book. That's the second and third book. The first book is purely a, a fictional account of the crazed trial. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, how much research did you have to do on, on the craze story, or was it something that you were, you know, you were fairly up to date with? Had you done much reading about the craze? Uh, yes, I, I've read. Every, well, in fact, I bought every book there was possible about the craze that I read before this, and I've talked to people that knew them, and I've um, I've done as much research as, as was possible. Why do you think that the craze um, holds such fascination for the, the British public? I think because they were different things to different people. In the East End of London, they were, and they still are to a degree, folk heroes. And uh, to other people that don't really know the story, um, they were very bad people. Yeah. Does it surprise you that, that, that there were thought of as folk heroes in the East End? Having spoken to people that knew them, no, not really, not at all. In fact, not at all. Um, they were good to the people that they lived around. Um, and they looked after the old people, but uh, they, but deep down inside, I think they were very evil people. Mm. Do you think the crates were good criminals? I don't think they were. No, they had good criminals around them because they they liked to get other people to do the dirty work most of the time, apart from obviously the two murders. Yeah, I was going to say that was going to be one of my next questions. Does it surprise you? You know, that, you know how you know the crates would often. Use other people to carry out, you know, bad crimes, misdemeanors, etc. Did it did it surprise you how naive they were to, you know, to first of all go into the blind beggar pub as Ronnie Craig did and shoot George Nell dead in front of witnesses, and then of course lure one of the firm members, Jack Pat McVitie, to everyone room and and stab him to death in front of witnesses. Did it surprise you that they were as naive and possibly as arrogant to do those kind of? No, I think that didn't surprise me at all. I think they were extremely arrogant, and I think that was their downfall in the end. Mm. I mean, the you know the firm members who obviously were around them at the time. Some, of course, used evidence. Others kept their mouth shut and obviously paid the price, paid heavy prices with uh, the long sentences that they received. The Lambriano brothers spring to mind. Chris and Tony, of course, 
Uh, Freddie Foreman, I think, was probably unfortunate in in the circumstance to be you know given some time for this, but he by his own admission got away with other things which he should have been given time for. Uh, Charlie Cray, of course, the elder brother, um, was was given the ten years as well for his involvement in the Jack the Hat case. Um, did those people feature? Did the likes of Foreman and uh, you know Charlie Cray and the Lambriano feature in the book? In the first book, they feature very heavily um, because there there has to be a lot of jury tampering going on to fix the trial at Del Bailey, and who better to do it than those than those creatures? Yeah, obviously, you're you're from a police's perspective. Uh, the hero of the day in the Cray's case was obviously a guy called. Leonard Nipper Reed, who sadly has passed away this year. Um, he was also a fantastic servant to the British Boxing Board of Control. Uh, he sadly passed away this year. Um, but yes, with with Leonard Nipper Reed, does he feature in the book? Yes, of course he does. Yes, the the, the people that uh, actually dealt with him feature quite heavily in the book, and Nipper Reed features quite heavily as well. In in the certainly the first well the first three books I've written, he features in them all. Uh, and he doesn't feature very well, but it was written out of respect to him anyway, and, and I think everybody knows that. You're obviously going on. I mean, you've already mentioned that you know you've got numerous books on this subject. Um, are we going to see the craze moving through generations? Because obviously the book will be starting in the in the very late sixties, of course, when they, the the craze went to trial. Of course, rested in May '68. They went on trial and were convicted in. In May '69, and given 30-year recommendations, but obviously in your book they're going to be free men. Um, you know, are we going to see Craig's progress through different eras, the '70s? Are we going to see them walking around longer hair, uh, Farrah flares, and uh, are we going to see them dominating the uh, robbery scene and potentially taking over the drug scene in the '80s and '90s? Or, or are we going to be uh, are we going to be just sticking to a certain generation, Steve? Well, I can't give too much away, obviously, but uh, in the current book that I'm writing it's at the moment it's up to about 1983 and they're still dressed in the same suit um, and they don't like to get their hands very dirty but it's, it's set in 1983 and it'll go forward from there a little bit Do you think that's why, I mean I've already asked you about why the public fascination um, I've often said that it was you know a lot of it has to do with it, that it was in the 1960s and the 60s is this, um, it's almost in a bubble of its own in in terms of generations, uh, but we have a lot of people who are high profile in, in that particular era, and uh, none more so than photographer David Bick, who obviously took the notorious photograph which adorns your cover, um, yes. which is also the photograph that drew me into the crazy story because originally it was on the uh, the front cover of John Pearson's uh, the very first book on the craze, The Profession of Violence, and that's how I got my interest in the craze. I saw that at a boot sale. I bought the book. Um, my English teacher then allowed me to take professional violence as part of my curriculum, as part of my GCSE exams. And that's how I, my interest in the craze grew. I then wrote to the craze as a 16-year-old and offered them a business proposal uh, to, put the t to put that image on a T-shirt. Um, but my life changed because of that photograph. Um, and I think, do you think a lot of people were drawn in by Bailey's images? Because he obviously was part of his picture box, you know, book that came out in the 60s. He, he included the Rolling Stones in there, the Beatles, obviously, you know, the Crays were in there. It's almost as if David Bailey took those photographs and put them in a time capsule and, and made them famous. Yes, I totally agree with you there. I think, it, I think David Bailey is responsible for a lot of their infamy um, by putting their picture out there. 
and that the like you say the picture behind you is one everybody knows about and and can uh, relate to i think I mean, obviously, the the careers were, you know, uh, you know, they're only running the East End. I mean, you know, they, they were in this particular Mile End Snooker Club, which we had started out. They they moved on to take over the, you know, various clubs. But when we talk about clubs and and spielers nowadays, we think of big, vast venues which have got huge open spaces and dance floors, etc. In theory, a lot of these places were actually above betting shops or whatever, they were actually in people's front rooms, some of these places which were called clubs. So they were, they were king of all the surveyed to a degree, but it, you know, it wasn't as we would know nightclubs and bars now as such. Um, but, you know, do you think that there's, you know, that era is gone? Do you, do you think in the East End of London, I know, I know the, the, you know, the, the demographic has changed down there now, and, you know, you walk down Bethnal Green and it's, uh, you know, a lot of the signs are in Arabic and, you know, the, you know, the ethnic... I think minority is probably the the majority down there now. Um, but do you ever think that, that kind of thing could be repeated, where you have two, two brothers who run a certain section of, of the East End of London and get away with murder? Um, the answer is they don't get, they only get away with it in my books. Um, but in real life, I don't think that's at all possible these days because I think policing has moved on so much since those days that it would be impossible for two men like that to get away with it now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, your your stories, of course, as they, you know, they involve the phrase. Um, is it is it a without giving too much away? Is it a, a good versus evil kind of you know plot throughout these books? You know, good versus evil. Is the wind on both sides, Steve? Well, I think in in the later books they try to do good. Mm. Their version of doing good isn't everybody else's version of doing good, and it's and and they find the police to be. Uh, slightly wanting in their investigations and so they decide that they will deal with the, the, some of the crimes their way yeah a lot of um, a lot of people when you know when they're given a such a recommendation in a sentence and they're sent to prison we never hear from them again but the craze you know behind bars become more popular and you know i know from my own experience you know actually made more money and they became more profitable Behind bars. Why do you think that was? I think because well, David Bailey again. I think is responsible for that, and uh, I'm sure that, that they were great friends of his um, because of that. And, and I know you said about the properties that they owned, but they actually owned a huge amount of properties, a vast amount of property in the East End and the West End of London. Um, not just the little shops, but they owned, they owned, did own big clubs, and they used to go into pubs and befriend the owners, um, and then they would take the, take the gang in there, the firm, and then they, they would tend to take over the pub completely and certainly take the profits. That was one of the, one of the usual things which people don't know very much about. But that was the way that they, they acted. Have you uh, paid particular interest in, in Ron's mental illness throughout? So I think it's something which is often forgotten about, uh, you know, that Ron was actually a paranoid schizophrenic, and obviously in those days... Uh, the only way that they would, you know, be able to, you know, diagnose that and treat it, um, you know, was that, you know, they called you mad and gave you stematol. And if you take your tablets, then, you know, your, your paranoid schizophrenia could get out of control. You certainly weren't going to mix your tablets with alcohol, but Ron clearly did on more than one occasion. But, yeah, do you look into his mental illness in, in these books? Yes, it features quite heavily. Um, and that they were, 
what people don't know is they were fairly religious as well. That features quite a lot as well. Fantastic. But, but the, men the mental illness certainly features, and it gets obviously that gets worse as time goes on. And the sexuality, Steve, I've got to ask you about that. I think over, over recent years, uh, prior to, you know, before Reg and, and Charlie passed away in 2000, um, I think there was more indication than ever that, Ron, you know, Ron, we all knew was gay, uh, but that Reg potentially was gay. Is there, you know, do you, do you look into that as well? Yes, of course I do, yes. That's the, that's the part of that everybody knows, and it features very heavily as well. Not too heavily, but... Um, of course, it's, it's part of their story. And um, I think Reg is part of it. I haven't overlooked it, but uh, he, I think he tried to overlook it by, by marrying eventually and uh, that, that Ronnie didn't like that and did something about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was such a tragic story. You know, Princess sadly was such a, a, another victim in, in the career story. What, what's your take on Charles Cray, Steve? Because... You know, Ronnie and Reggie Cray, we know, um, both committed murder. Uh, Ronnie, of course, as I've already mentioned, shooting George Cornell in the Blind Beggar pub and Jack the Hat, uh, you know, becoming victim to Reggie in a, in a knife frenzy in Evering, Evering Road. Charlie Cray always seemed to be the unlucky one. He was the older brother. Uh, he spent time in the Navy. He had a great boxing record. Um, he seemed to spend his life tidying up after the twins. Sadly got, you know, woken up, you know, by by one of the firm members um, once Jack had been murdered and, you know, essentially told to, to try and get it cleaned up. And, and, and he obviously then involved Freddie Foreman in that. And they both ended up getting 10 years, you know, 10 years for, for being involved. Neither of them were actually at the murder. Um, but essentially with Charlie Cray, there's always this impression that he was just the unlucky Cray. But, you know, do you do you paint him as a, as a... Do you paint him as part of the film or do you paint him as a... A bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a naive extra in the story. I think you're exactly right. I think he was very naive um, and he did the things he did because of his brothers. Um, and he didn't want to be seen as, as being the weak one. That's my take on him. Yeah. Obviously, you'll have watched over the years, you know, as, as the Cray's, um, you know, passed away one by one. Ronnie Cray, of course, died in 1995. Ironically, died on comic relief day. Um, but when he was buried and, and given his funeral, um, the turnout in London was akin to the turnout that they had for Winston Churchill's funeral. Um, you know, uh, you know, as a former police officer, did that did that surprise you? Did it horrify you? You know, did you wonder what on earth you were doing? What what was your take on the funeral of Ron Cream? Um, I think uh, yes, it surprised me. I think it surprised a lot of people actually. But hearing about it afterwards, that the uh, the punch-ups that there were at the funeral between the Richardsons and the Crays still carried on, didn't it? And uh, I think that surprised me as much as the turnout. Mm, I mean, it was. A, I mean, I was there. I was. I, I was actually Charlie Cray's security on the day. Um, you know, I, I'd been asked to go down and look at Ron's body at the uh, funeral parlour, English funeral parlour, but sadly, I, I couldn't make that. Dave Courtney and some of his security were actually doing that during the week. But um, on the day, I was obviously asked to, to be, you know, security for Charlie Cray. And, um, you know, it, it was a surreal day for me. That was the day that I realised that I had to start making notes about my involvement with the Crays. And I think it was a, a wake-up call for me being in the cortege, in the car, uh, as we went over the Bow flyover. And they were doing some work on the Bow flyover at the time. And there were six 
workmen with their yellow hard hats basically off and, and at the front with a with a hard hat crowd as as the cortege passed and I, I just I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, you know. And I mean of course there'd been a lot of rumours and you know, over the years that that was where Jack Hatt's body was buried under the bow flyover. And it was the irony of seeing, you know, Ronnie Craig going over the top of it, these, these guys paying their respects, normal, you know, title fivers, and, you know, the potential of Jack had being underneath us. And I just, it was just a wake up call for me, I think, that I was being a little bit young and naive, you know, that I was involved in this inner circle with the craze. And it's, you know, maybe I should start writing this down. So that was the beginning of, you know, my Notes, which which eventually led to me publishing the craze the Geordie Connect, but um, but yeah, I think it's it, it was bizarre, and I think um, I think what what actually happened with the craze was they they essentially um, you know they realised that the legend uh, or their legend was probably the most important thing to them. I you know I think I, I ended up becoming a bit of a keeper of the craze flame in the sense that you, know, you had to keep making them relevant, and on that I had with Reg. Reg would constantly be bringing out bits of paper. Um, you know, we would always have ideas for uh, for, for different you know, different business enterprises or different books, etc. And yeah, I mean, you know, like I said before, the the craze were constantly making money, you know, behind bars. But the legend became the legend became the important thing. And they, you know, once they shuffled off this mortal coil, you know, they'd always be remembered. And I think that became the most important thing too. You know. Yes, I think you. Uh, yes, I didn't realise that you worked for Charlie Cray. Um, so, what, what was your opinion of Charlie Cray then? Your own opinion? My opinion. Well, I, I visited Reg in prison for ten years. I visited Broadway for five years, and I visited. I I, I became friends with Charlie. Um, I felt very sorry for Charlie. Um, I, another book which I brought out myself with Britain's Next Bestseller was a, a book called Operation Ask, uh, which I believe is still on sale on their website and. That goes into the final, the final case of the craze, which was um, Charlie Cray was arrested in 1997 for his his involvement in conspiracy to supply 37 million pounds worth of cocaine. Uh, at the time he was arrested, I think it was with uh, Ronnie Fields um, and, and another. Uh, but it was uh, p- police officers from the northeast, undercover police officers from the northeast, who were working on our numerous. Occasions, Charlie was invited up to uh, to stay in Linden Hall, just outside Newcastle, near the airport. And you know, he, he basically promised that he could deliver. You know, he could deliver cocaine. I mean, it, it, you know, when you look th- look through the case files, look at the undercover tape, uh, which I which I cover in that book. Um, again, I think it just showed a naivety on Charlie's behalf because Charlie was not a big time drug dealer. He wasn't a big time drug trafficker. Charlie didn't have. A penny to his name. He he was Charlie Cray, me out of being the elder brother of the Crays. But unfortunately, because of the change of laws for him, he got he got entrapped, I believe, by the police. And and I believe the paperwork shows that in the book. He he basically just got sucked in. And unfortunately, if I if I have a conversation with you, Steve, and you say to me, "Can you get me something?" and I go, "Well, I'll try." Um, I make a phone call to somebody and I go, oh, I've got my pal Steve. He's after something here. Is there any any chance of uh, any chance of sorting them out? Yeah, I can do that. I put you two in touch and then I go off and have my life. And if that something that I've put you in touch about turns out to be drugs, um, and I'm unbeknown to it, um, you go off and do a drug deal with this guy and get arrested. The person who gets the biggest jail is me because I've introduced the pair of you. 
and and it's you know it, it, it's expected that I've had, I've had something to do with it. But I, I genuinely believe that's what happened with Charlie. He was he was a bit stupid. He was a bit naive, and you know, unfor- unfortunate for him, it ended up being a life sentence because going into prison in his seventies and being given a twelve and eight currently, um, that was always going to finish him off. And I, my last visit with him in Franklin Prison before he was moved to the Isle of Wight, which is where he died, and um, you know, he was a tragic figure to see. I mean, gone gone was the tan, gone was the the dyed hair. You know, he was sitting in prison prison civvies and. I always feel I always feel Steve was a little bit of a shall we say a government exercise because the last thing that the government or any government would have was any, either of the Cray twins to be walking free you know, in in England and and appearing on chat shows as, as they probably would have done and I always feel that Reg's parole was up he, he had a really good barrister alongside him by this time because he'd remarried to another woman called Roberta Cray and. I always feel that it was a little bit of a pawn being moved in a game. And the one way to stop Reggie Cray getting out was to make sure that the Cray's name was in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. And that was simply, let's target Charlie Cray, let's get the Cray's on the front pages for the wrong reasons. And then if it ever comes to Reggie Cray having another parole opportunity, um, we can always point to the fact that uh, if his brother is not going to change, what chance has he got to change? So I always think it was a big pawn in a game. We'll never know, of course, because, you know, soon after Charlie was, you know, given that ultimate life sentence, uh, Reggie Cray was, you know, essentially diagnosed with cancer, something which they could have essentially diagnosed a lot earlier, but they refused him hospital treatment, refused him any examinations until it became, you know, impossible to do so. And then once he was checked out, of course, the cancer had gone too far. He was riddled with cancer and then he was given a posthumous release. And he died, obviously, in a hotel in Norfolk. So um, a tragic end to a story. Some may say it's a, a just end for somebody who took somebody else's life. Um, but I also feel with Reg, I also feel with Reg moving off Charlie, I also feel with Reggie Cray that because he never showed remorse, Steve, he never apologised for his crimes. Um, he obviously went on to prop from books by talking about murder. Um, that, you know, I always feel that he never had a chance of getting parole anyway. And he's, his behaviour in prison was never was never acceptable, really, as well. He, he had many he had many warnings for, for being drunk in jail, whether it was from prison hooch or from alcohol that was sneaked in on visits, um, or approaching young offenders. Um, he had, a, he had a, you know, he'd been told off on more than one occasion for, you know, spending too much time with young offenders and being a bit of a pest to them, you know, so... Sad, sad end for Reggie, and um, you know, uh, as I say, a lot of people say it was just. But you know, I could only speak as I find, and I only met I only met the twins, you know, as as two, you know, prisoners who'd been institutionalised for over twenty years. So I can only speak as I find, but I got on quite well with with all three of them, but in different ways. You know, I wish I'd met them later in life, though, because I'd love to know the real reason they were coming to Newcastle. And of course, when I was visiting them when I was younger. It was um, it was something which I wasn't it wasn't in my mind. I didn't really know the people in Newcastle then who who were in their circle. I've subsequently gone on to make documentary about it, and um, we put all this, we've got all the stories out there why they were here. We've got photographs of them in Newcastle, etc. But we'll never really know the real reason why they were here. You know. Yes, of course, and and uh, of course they went to America as well. Um, did you cover that in your stories? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, for, from my perspective, with you know, with Ron going to America, there'd been books done already. Colin Fry's done a fantastic book about you know Charlie Cray and the mafia. Um, we've looked into that. I mean, uh, you know, whether you've seen it or not, there's an FBI paper which is readily available. There's copies of that you can buy on the internet. Um, a lot of it's blacked out, but um, you know, the Crays, the Crays, you know, had had ins with a lot of people, but. Like we said at the start of the podcast, he wasn't, you know, the, the, they weren't the brightest of criminals. Um, you know, looking for a better expression, they were thieves' ponces. They, they, they would allow you or me to go off and do a bit of work on their manor. Um, then they'd be knocking on your door saying, where's our cut? And if you didn't give them their cut, they'd be beating you up. And that was, that yeah. was, that, that was what they did. They had a profession of violence, you know. So it was, uh, it was interesting. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it is fascinating story and i think you know the fact that you've chosen to do um a fictional you know fictional books around them and about a, about an, a release rather than a conviction i think it's fascinating i think you'll find you know a lot of certainly will be interested in it. um have you ever watched the, have you watched any of the films steve you've read all the books have you ever watched the films yes i've watched the films and i've met the actors and in fact i, I asked one of the actors involved if they would be interested in making a film of these this trilogy that I've written, and they consider themselves too old at the moment. Right. What do you make of you know which which was your favourite film? I have to say I like the first one with the Kemp's. Um, yes. Yeah. I did enjoy that, but it, but I don't think it was anywhere near accurate. But it was a good story. It's very difficult in the film to cram. You know, so much, so many years of life into two hours. That's the problem. Of yes, of course. Ray Burdis, of course, was uh, the man behind that film. You know, he got together with uh, Dominic Anciano to to get the funding in and bring the film together. And uh, Medak, of course, directed it. Uh, we've we've teamed up myself and uh, Freddie Foreman's godson. Uh, we've teamed up with them to do Freddie's life story. So the script's been written uh, already, and um, it's now in the financing stage. So. That will be that. That will be another film, which will of course touch on the crimes, but concentrate more on on Fred's life. Getting away from from the crime side of the craze, I, I suppose you know, has it surprised you how crimes changed, Steve, over the years? And like I mentioned a bit earlier, you know, in the nineteen sixties, it was you know you had the craze running London, demanding money with menaces, protection rackets, etc. There was a little bit of drugs in there with uppers and downers and things like that. Um, but then you moved into the 1970s era where it was all about the pavement. It was all about robberies and armed robberies. And then the police became armed in the 70s. So that deterred a lot of robbers getting involved this, you know, you know, in that kind of game. And then we moved into the 80s with drugs and, and drugs became the currency on the street. So has it has it surprised you how crimes changed, Steve? It hasn't surprised me. But of course, they started really um, well, they started when they were young, but. A lot of the gangs uh, were became criminals during the war, didn't they? Opportunists, I, I guess, uh, when they escaped national service or went AWOL from national service, they became opportunists. But I think a lot of the gangs started opportunists. I don't think there is that opportunity anymore for villains to become that way. I think uh, the police have become more sophisticated in their ways. I'm not a great police supporter, I have to say, at the moment. But, but I think they've become very sophisticated these days and it's more difficult for people like the Prey's or the Prey Gang to operate. 
It's interesting that you say you're not a big fan. You know, you're not as big a fan of the police. Is it? Is there a particular reason for that, Steve? Is it? Is it the method that they use, or is it? You know, I'm just interested to know. Well, I was a when I joined the police officer uh, as a police officer, the the rules were slightly were a lot different. The Police and Criminal Evidence Act um, made life difficult for serving police officers that had that served under the judge's rules. It basically meant that you had to be nice to people all the time, and they had more rights. And I was in the murder school at that time, and I dealt with some very bad people. In fact, I was dealing with people that you never want to even talk to, and uh, you have to be nice to them. And I found that very difficult. I found it, in fact, I found it impossible. So that probably was another reason for me leaving, that I couldn't operate under the conditions. The conditions now are, are even worse for them, better for villains, but, but worse for the police. And I don't think it's right. I don't think that they should be hampered by all the rules that they are. But in my day, it was really, if you interviewed somebody, if you arrest somebody and you interviewed them, if you were better than them, they were charged. If they were better than you, they walked out of the police station. You shook, always shook hands. That's the way it was. And I believe that's the way it should, should have stayed. And that's, my, so that's just my take on it. I'm sure there's nobody else that thinks that way. Back in your day, Steve, you had to be a certain height as well. I, I, what always impressed me about the current police force is... We get all different shapes and sizes, and um, I know that they obviously still have, you know, the strict medical, etc. Before that, you know, before you become a servant police officer, you know, I believe they still do things like the beep test, etc. But it always surprises me that, you know, there's, there's a lot of police officers well under six foot, sometimes, you know, five foot seven, five foot eight. Uh, physically, they don't look in the best shape. Um, you know, does that surprise you? Well, I'm five foot eight, and I just squeezed in. Right. But in those days, you had to be fit. Right. That, that was a very much a part of it. You had to be fit. Now, there is no height or weight regulations because I think that's against your human rights to be uh, biased on those, on those conditions. So uh, I, I don't agree with that at all. How can you run after a villain if, if you uh, are overweight and underfit? Mm. I mean, technology, as you say, has come, come on leaps and bounds now. And... Um, you know, the policing has, has obviously changed as well. You you have a sense now that, you know, police would rather, you know, allow, you know, criminals to get away with crimes because they know that they're always going to be able to catch up with them at a later date. So, you know, whether it's whether it's a CCTV camera, which is in the right place, which can catch an armed robber uh, or someone who's stealing someone's bag or whether it's um, someone carrying a, a smartphone. You know, smartphones are essentially tracking devices. Um, you know, they, they can tell, you know, you know, any police officer who can get into those phones can, can find out where you've been, what time you were there, you know, and, and sometimes even who you were with because of, you know, the, the connections between phone masts. It's, uh, you know, it, it's almost a case of, you know, we can catch you after the crime. We don't catch you doing the crime anymore. Well, I think, like I said before, I think te technology has moved on so far that it allows them to do it has made the job somewhat easier. Um, but I think they still want to catch them before they do anything else. So catching them later, I don't think is an option. And the laws have changed to the degree now where, you know, even if you are a villain and you've got away with things 10 years previous and, you know, if you can't prove where your money's come from, when you eventually do get caught, they can, they can obviously confiscate all your illegal 
gotten gained. So, you know, you might have that nice £150,000 car and a £150,000 house, but if you can't prove where you got that from or where the money came from that purchased it, there's confiscation orders now. So, you know, as I've, as I've had on my show, you know, on numerous occasions over the last few months, I've had a lot of former criminals um, who will remain former criminals because, they've, you know, not only have they learned their lesson, but they now see that, you know, crime, you know, literally does not pay, which unfortunately back in the day it did. Yes, the Proceeds of Crime Act has changed all that, hasn't it, completely. Um, yes, I agree with that. Yeah. Obviously, um, you know, off our, off our turf and, and in another country, a lot of publicity, you know, surrounding the, uh, you know, the death of George Floyd. I mean, I would presume that just horrifies, you know, you know somebody like yourself who served, you know, served the force in, in England for 10 years. But to see a, an acting police officer in America, you know, actually kill somebody, was it's, it, it just wonders what kind of world we're living in. Yes, I, I agree. Of course, it, I think it horrified the whole world. But what wasn't publicised was the amount of um, white white people that have been killed in the same manner by American police. There, there, are, there are very many of them. Mm. And that's never been publicised, really. It's something that's going to go on and on, Steve. I think uh, certainly. So, getting back to getting back to your book, uh, your, your books. You, you know, this one that's out now has just been released. Obviously, there's been a slight delay with Britain's next bestseller because of uh, the, the the horrendous pandemic that we've all been going through. Um, what's the release schedule for books? And uh, you know, do, do those do those other books have names yet? Yeah, they, they all have names. Um, the second one is called. Um, the second one is just following from this, and uh, as is the third one. But I've also written a book about Jack the Ripper in 1988 with modern police techniques, and um, written his next bestseller, bestseller once to release that after this one. So I'm very happy for them to do as they wish, because I'm very proud of that one. I'd like to say that with this one, I've had a, a huge amount of support from from people, including Fred Dinage, who wrote there official story obviously and um and um some two members of the gang have been incredibly helpful as well others are like freddie foreman for instance completely blanked me because i felt it was important that i should tell them that i was a policeman and i think for that reason they've i've been blanked by everybody else that i've approached on about this that was involved in the gang I mean, if you can get me a copy of the book through David, I will certainly, uh, A, I'll give it a review, uh, but B, I will be able to get it into the hands of Fred. Uh, I've known Fred for 25 years. Um, so, you know, if you if you want us to get a, a copy of the book to Fred, then uh, might be able to give you some endorsement for your other ones. Um, but, yeah, if you if you don't mind doing that, Fred's, Fred sits at home a lot these days and uh, likes to read books. So sure, yeah. I'm sure he'd be interested in reading it and having a look at it anyway. Yeah, if... If nothing else, he might find it amusing. Yeah, I think he would do, yeah. He want, he'll want to know what he gets up to if he gets off, that's for certain. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I, I, if I remember rightly, he is involved in the first book. He, he certainly mentioned the first book. The one thing about Fred was, I mean, you know, he didn't get the title Managing Director of British Crime for nothing. So, uh, you know, you've always, got, you've always got to remember that, I think. If you, yeah. if you get that. Yeah, if you include them in other books, that is. Well, that's great. Listen, um, been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And as I say, nothing uh, like the truth. 
which is about, of course, the Prey Twins walking free, um, is by Steve Drift. You can buy it on Britain's Next Best Sellers website. Uh, we'll post the uh, details for that in the biog so you can uh, go straight to the website. Uh, failing that, if you want to go to Amazon and just search out Steve Thrift Books, uh, you will find that on there. And keep an eye out, of course, if you set, uh, set yourself to following Steve on Amazon, you'll probably get notifications of when these other books come out. Uh, anything else you want to say, Steve, about the books, etc., or, or the craze in particular? No, they, they, they will continue to fascinate me. Um, and I believe what I am writing would have been the way that they would have acted had they been released. So um, it's something that I feel very passionately about. And I, like I said, I've had a lot of support. Bernie Feynman, who was their young mechanic at the time, has been my biggest supporter. And I, and I can't think, thank him enough and the people that have supported me. Well, Steve, good luck with it, and uh, best of luck. Of you know, hopefully, it will get dramatized at some point. It's something I would watch. But uh, now, Steve Thrift, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time.